So I want to share with you, the title of my uh, talk is The Peril of a Successful Ministry. And I want to specifically talk about, uh, I, I want to kind of zero in on one particular attribute that I think is indispensable for all biblical leadership, and that is the attribute of humility and the danger of its opposite, which is pride, and how that's a particular challenge when things seem to be going well. And whether the success you're having is a, is a moderate success or whether it's a mega success, uh, even, if, even if the success really is biblical, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-fueled spiritual growth, there is a peril in that to our souls that has sabotaged men throughout the centuries who've led God's people. So I want to look with you at a leader who fell to pride, and his name is King Uzziah. And so I want to look with you at Second Chronicles 26 this afternoon. Second Chronicles 26. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Uzziah was a great leader of Judah, and he was a man who had a meteoric rise that was then followed by a cataclysmic collapse. And at the apex, at the hinge of this transition from the rise to the fall was his pride. So let's look at the rise and fall of King Uzziah. I'm going to read chapter 26, and then we'll look at it together. Second Chronicles 26.1, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After the king slept with his fathers, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath, and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territories of Ashdod and every, elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and against the Menuhites. The Amorites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions, according to the numbers and the muster made by Jael the secretary and Messiah the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307, 500,000 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made engines invented by skillful men to be on the towers in the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But 
when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to bring incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priests, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in the forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, For he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and he buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Let me give you a quick structure for this chapter. There's three parts. Verses 1 through 5 is the introduction to his reign with some standard features that we see when kings are described. We have his age when he became king. We have his father. Uh, He was 16 years old and reigned 15 years. That's that's remarkable. Uh, We have the name of his mother. That's apparently a big deal in Chronicles, who who your mama is. So there she is, Jechaliah. And then you have the all-important theological moral assessment of the king and there it is in verse 4 he did what was right in the eyes of the lord and then you have the body of his narrative which is verses 6 to 21 and then at the very end verses 22 to 23 is the some of the standard conclusion language that wraps up his reign but i want to focus us on verses 6 to 21 the the narrative of his reign. And we could further divide verses 6 to 21 into two halves. You have his rise in verses 6 to 15, and then his fall in verses 16 to 21. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at his rise, and we'll look at his fall, and then think about both warnings and instructions and encouragements from his life as we think about how to lead a humble ministry, and to guard against a prideful ministry, especially when things are going well in ministry. Let's first of all look at his rise, verses 6 to 15, and take instruction from it. And man, did this guy have a successful reign. It starts off uh, actually back in verse 2, where it says, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Eloth was a town uh, a city right at the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba in uh, Edomite territory. You know, King David conquered the Edomites, and then they rebelled. And then his dad, Uzziah's dad, actually reconquered the Edomites. And so uh, one of his early wins in his reign was to reestablish this trading post. So it kind of unlocked uh, trade southward into the Arabian Peninsula and beyond. So he begins with a kind of big economic win. 
But it didn't stop there. He had military successes. You notice in uh, verses uh, 6 and following that he fought against the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Arabians. Now, that was a big win, too, because this was actually an old score to settle. Because seven, several generations prior, this same confederacy of nations uh, successfully attacked Judah and almost wiped out the Davidic line. So this was like an old grudge. It's an old score to settle. And it was settled. So he had a, he had a military victory. He was a builder. He was building towers. He loved agriculture. The agricultural uh, strength of his empire grew. He had all kinds of soldiers I mean, I mean, the volunteers in his, you know, warfare ministry team were the envy of all the other countries. All of these leaders, great, what a staff he had working for him. They were amazing. And then, then he even built, he, he equipped all the army with all the weapons and things that they needed. He even had guys invent new catapults and things. I mean, Jerusalem was just, it was like a, a city in clash of clans. They just kept leveling up, you know, with more and more powerful weapons and things like that. The economy was up. Military was up. Building was up. Uh, research and development, up. People were wearing big turban, red turbans that said, make Jerusalem great again. <laughs> it really was a kind of renaissance. It was a renaissance in Judean power and culture. Uh, it, 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 this was a renewal. It was kind of a return to the old days. I even wonder as I was reading this if, if his success is not in fact cast in kind of Solomonic echoes. You know, he loves the soil and he's expanding south just like King Solomon had trade with the Queen of Sheba and uh, his, his fame extending to the borders of Egypt, the spread of his fame. And so it's almost like there, there's this return to the good old days of Solomon. It was a time of great blessing. So let me make two observations about this time of, of rise and success in Uzziah's reign that I think are pertinent to leadership as we think about how we lead and, and what we do as pastors in our churches in particular. And here's the first observation as we think about the perils of successful ministry, the first observation is that success itself isn't bad. That the success we see here in Uzziah's ministry, uh, or his reign, is a positive thing. It's not presented to us as a negative. It's, it's the blessing of God in his life. And, and I think that as we think about how to handle fruitfulness in ministry and how we relate to it as pastors, let's not make the mistake of thinking that the the fruit or the blessing is inherently wrong or, or that if somebody is fruitful that, that they should somehow be held in suspicion uh, for some reason. And I think that can happen sometimes. We, we, we can sometimes fall into a kind of suspicion and cynicism about success broadly defined. Uh, and, and part of that's because of what we're reacting against often. We're reacting against the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. We're reacting against pragmatic, kind of off-theological church growth techniques where it's all about do whatever it takes just to get the numbers in the room. And we're reacting against that. We're reacting against the kind of pastor du jour, uh, the celebrity pastor who's got the, he's got the fastest growing ministry. 
Uh, and, and he's writing the books on how to do what he did. And everyone's chasing after that pastor, just like we chased after the one last year trying to implement the ideas. And so we're reacting against that, but we have to be careful that we don't kind of develop a cynical, uh, suspicious view of fruit where we almost make like failure of virtue or something. <laughs> like, you know, numbers are down. People are unhappy. Praise God, we're being faithful. <laughs> we're not tickling ears at this church, no, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but like, shouldn't our souls just yearn to see people saved and baptized and and new Christians grow up to be elders and churches planted. I mean, we should be praying for this and celebrating. I, I don't want to get to a state in my soul where, where I, I, I'm not able to pray like John Knox's famous prayer. Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Or George Whitfield's prayer. Lord, give me souls or take my soul. We're, we're, we're yearning for God to, to bless Sometimes I wonder if George Whitfield was alive today and the Great Awakening was happening today, would we be excited about it? I don't know that Whitfield. <laughs> you know, squishy ecclesiology. That Whitfield, you know, just, you've seen those rallies on YouTube? Wow. People falling over. A lot of drama, a lot of emotion. You know, he was an actor. Did you know that before I found it out? Would we really be new lights or would we not, in fact, be perhaps old lights and suspicious? And so we need, to be, we need to be excited and praying for the progress of the gospel, real Holy Spirit-given spiritual fruit, and we need to pray and work for it and hope for it in our ministries. We, we need to celebrate it when it happens. We especially need, I think this is a key in leadership among God's pastors and peoples, that we need to celebrate it when it happens in other churches. You know? Yay, let's get a revival. What if it's down the street <laughs> and not at your church? Right? Can we celebrate that because we, we want to see the power of God bring people to faith and grow them up to maturity? And so that, that's the first thing. Just to make clear, this is, this is not an anti fruit or an anti-success warning that we have here. And the second thing I just observed from the rise of King Uzziah is, is really a second observation that's the grounds for the first observation, and that is that all of this success came from the Lord. Very clear in this text that it was God's hand that granted this blessing. Look again at verse 5. It says he set himself to seek the Lord in the days of Zechariah. We don't know who Zechariah is. Probably a priest, since you have the, the other priests later on in the chapter, and, and priests were responsible for teaching the law of God. But whoever, he sought the Lord under the tutelage of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And here it is, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So if Uzziah wrote his book on his success and gave seminars, it'd be a pretty short seminar. I sought the Lord. He made me prosper. <laughs> I, I, I sought God, and God did a blessing. All these gifts are from God. Whatever good is happening in your ministry or my ministry, whether it's just a little fruit or a lot of fruit, we need to be clearly convinced of this, that it's all from the hand of God, given sovereignly as he chooses, 
not based upon some exchange that we make, but that we seek the Lord and he blesses. It's made clear in verses uh, 6 and 7 where it says that, that he grew strong. Do you see that? Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines. Verse 8, the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became strong. It's interesting you have this, this same trio of phrases that he grew strong, that his fame spread, and that he was helped. That same trio is repeated at the very end of verse 15. His fame spread, for he was marvelously helped, so he was strong. So you have this nice inclusio bracketing his rise that makes it clear that everything in there that good happened was because the Lord helped him. He became strong because of the Lord's hand. And so, so again, true spiritual fruit in our ministries is a gift from God. Our job is to be faithful, and God is the one who uh, adds to our number day by day those who are being saved. It's God who gives the increase. We're just the farmers who are being faithful as pastors, and it's God who makes the plant grow. And whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, the kingdom grows. It's God who gives the growth and God who gives the success and the blessing. So that means that for us as pastors, that one of the most important character qualities for leadership is that we be humble men. Humble men who are dependent upon God. If, if the, the problem, as we already read and we'll see in a moment with Uzziah, was eventually pride, then the proper posture is humility. And I want to further define humility I think in this text as uh, an active dependence upon God. That I think at the, the nub of the biblical concept of humility is very much a stance toward God that is relying on him, trusting in him. I think sometimes we think of humility as a kind of, I don't know, crisis of self-esteem or something. Like the humble person is the person who's you know, really unsure of themselves. And, and I, that's not really biblical humility. I mean, sometimes that can just be pride sort of turned inside out where it's all about trying to, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm not so great. I'm, I'm a loser. I'm not sure. But what we really want is just people to pay attention to us and have sympathy on us. And so it's very still self-focused. But real humility really isn't thinking about itself at all that much. Real humility is looking at God it's not about fearing people and what they think. It's about fearing God and realizing that God is my life. God is my wisdom. God is my all. And so I am dependent upon him like a little child who has no status and no standing and no strength and that it all comes from his hand. And so I think the humility that we're called to is a constant walk of faith and trust and dependence upon the Lord. If I had to pick a verse that summarizes Second Chronicles, I don't know if you ever preach a sermon series and you pick one verse out of the book that's kind of the, you know, the, the verse that's the subtext of the whole series. And if, if I had to pick a verse like that, one of the verses I might pick would be Second Chronicles 16.9. Look at Second Chronicles 16.9. I've always appreciated this one verse. I feel like this verse gets at the heart of one of the central themes of the book. Second Chronicles 
says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. So God is looking for the blameless heart in order to strengthen it. Now, then that raises the question, what's a blameless heart? How do you get a blameless heart? Well, let's look at the context of the passage. This context is about another king, King Asa, who also, like Uzziah, had a a long run of faithfulness and success, and then at the end collapsed. And, And his failure was that he was in a crisis, and so rather than relying on God to save him, he looked to the king of Syria and was trying to get help from them. So he gets confronted by a prophet... And so look at verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, get this, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are blameless before him. So the blameless heart that the Lord is looking for is the heart that's relying upon him. The blameless heart is not the perfect person, but it's the person who is by faith, by faith. Faith is, is what is credited to us as blamelessness. And so it's the person who's relying on God who is the person who is the humble person. And it's as if God's eyes are looking throughout the world for that person. And so in a sense, as we read Second Chronicles, it's as if we're looking at the history of Judah from a God's eye view. It's, it's as if God sort of invites us to his perspective as we read this book and we're looking at all these kings. Where's the one that's gonna trust you? And, and we're looking back and forth. You know, it says at the front of every king's biography, you know, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or he did right in the eyes of the Lord. And so this whole book is, is seeing the history of God's kings through the eyes of the Lord, looking for the person who will depend upon him. So brothers, we, we need to depend upon the Lord. We need to cultivate this kind of trusting, reliant humility. How do, how do we do that? How do we cultivate this humility in our lives and, and make sure that we stay in this posture of reliance. And of course, I think we could give lots of answers to this. Maybe that's something you want to talk about as, as you process this text later. Is, or what are the ways that you found helpful to stay humble in, min- in ministry? Um, here's three ideas. One, we need to be people, men, pastors who read the Word regularly. The fundamental act of humility is to submit yourself to God's word and to not read it to get a sermon out of it necessarily, not read it to get through your Bible in a year program. No, that's good. Not read it because, well, that's what good Christians do. They have quiet times. No, read it because you and I are desperate for wisdom, because we're desperate for for counsel from God. We're desperate to know God because we know that if we don't know him and and we're not instructed by him, that this this whole enterprise of ministry and leadership will fail because it's his enterprise. So we need to be people who are 
men and women of the word. Along with that is prayer. That's the second way to stay humble. We need to be praying. Prayerless pastors are proud pastors. Because when you don't pray, it's kind of like you're saying, I got it. I got this. I'll let you know if I need help, God. But, you know, I've been doing this for years. Got it down. No, we, we need to have that same kind of, give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my debts. Lord, protect me from evil. Bless the church. Lord, unless you build the house, I labor in vain. Unless you watch over the city, I watch in vain. You must do this work, God. I'll tell you something that, that in the last year or so has really helped my prayer life, and, and I would commend it to you. I've been really, it, it, was, it was a simple thing, but really helped my prayer life was um, moving to the Middle East. So, uh, <laughs> big help, highly in, encourage it. Uh, <laughs> my prayers shifted a lot. They became more like, help! <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> You know, coming from a, you know, pretty uh, monocultural church background to a church with over 60 countries in it and uh, super, you know, international. And I, man, I am just way out of my depth and sure helped my prayer life just to realize. And, you know, that's always true in ministry. Just often we don't realize it, that we can't do anything of spiritual fruit without him. So let's, let's be people of the word, people of prayer. And here's a third one. Let's, here's a third way to cultivate humility. We need to be, especially pastors and elders, we need to be pastors and elders who submit to our local church. That part of what God has given us to keep us humble is that he's given us the church. You know, that we often talk about the kingdom of God and advancing God's kingdom and building God's kingdom, but the place where the kingdom of God is tangibly manifested in the world today, this side of, of heaven, is the local church. The local church is an embassy or an outpost of God's kingdom in this world. And so if we want to submit to the king and to be dependent upon him, we have to be submitting to the local church. The leaders of God's church need to be followers of God's church. We need to submit ourselves to the local church. And so that's why it's so important that that we have uh, elders in our local church and a plurality of elders in the local church so that there's a a group of people who are leading together to whom we have to work with and submit. Sometimes people hear about plurality of eldership and they say, that just sounds pretty inefficient to me. (laughs) Isn't it better just to have the senior pastor? You know, he's Moses. He goes to the tent. (laughs) He gets the, the message. He comes to the elders. They say, amen, right? Uh, But by the way, in the New Testament, the position of Moses is taken by Jesus. He's Moses. We're just the under shepherds of Jesus. So no, no, the the plan isn't to have some, you know, the anointed one leading the church and all the other guys saying amen. God's purpose is to have a body of elders. And yeah, you know what? It is really inefficient sometimes. It drives me crazy sometimes, I'm going to be honest. Like, I just, I know what to do. Why don't you guys just listen to me? (laughs) And sometimes they don't. Any pastors here ever get voted down in a board meeting? I lost a vote this week. That really made me mad. (laughs) But it's good for my soul. It's good for my soul to submit to the wisdom and sovereignty of God as manifested in that group 
Even if their decision proves wrong, it's good for me, as long as it's not a matter of, of really strong moral conscience, to submit to that as I learn to, to follow those brothers. And it's not just the elders. We submit ourselves one to another in the body of Christ, submitting ourselves to, to church members, um, submitting our ministry to their critique. Uh, if, if you don't have this practice, I would encourage you to find some way to develop a, a regular sermon review process in your church where other members and elders can review your sermon and give you feedback. And, and, and it's, it's so helpful, not only for yourself, but it's helpful for the church to see that you're submitting yourself to their uh, critique and review as well. Um, it's also helpful just in, in dealing with the matter of criticism. I, I think for some of us, criticism is one of the most debilitating, <laughs> draining aspects of pastoral ministry. Believers in our churches who seem to have the gift of criticism and, uh, you know, use it liberally uh, in our lives. And always criticizing, always critiquing. But, but you know, if you, see, if you see that as part of God's shaping in our lives to keep us in a place of humility, it, it helps. Not that it makes everything critics say right, but it helps with our own souls to, to keep us dependent upon God. I have found in my own ministry that even my most vociferous critics, even, my, even the most, in some cases, sinful, immature criticisms I receive will usually have a little nugget of truth to them. They're usually reacting to something in me even if they're reacting in an overblown way, in a sinful way, it's usually something. And, and I don't, sometimes I have the, the grace by God to see that, other times I don't. But if I can humbly receive it and step back and process it, often I'll see that, that they're pointing out something in my life that I need to hear. And so trust, you know, trust your churches, brothers. They've been put there by God in our lives to, to disciple us. We're not just there to, to raise them up and disciple them. The whole church is God's gift to us to keep us humble and dependent upon him. And don't you see that a humble, dependent ministry is a gospel-shaped ministry? That it, it, it is not just gospel-proclaiming, it's gospel-shaped. Because what is the gospel? It is this wonderful message of the grace of God, the undeserved mercy of God toward us that we don't deserve, but that God has shown us in Christ. Though we are sinners, though we deserve his condemnation and his wrath, God has sent his own son to die for us and to rise again. And, and how do we receive that salvation through Christ? We've got to repent and believe, to trust, to humbly rely upon the Lord. And so... That's what Uzziah did at first. He trusted in God. Verse 15, in Jerusalem he made engines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and corners to shoot arrows and stones. Here we go. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong... He grew proud to his destruction. It was in that pride, rather in that strength, which was a blessing from God, that he got confused and he sinned and he thought that it was himself 
he, he, he forgot that he was actually spiritually exothermic, like a reptile, needing the grace of God in his life. And he began to think that the good things were happening were because he was spiritually and morally endothermic, as if, you know, he was the one generating the fruit and, and the ministry. And that happens when things are going well. We, we just so easily become proud when we grow strong. And so it happens in our churches. Maybe you start out as that, that young pastor with quaking knees, going into the ministry, relying on God, or, or maybe you're, you're that church planter who starts with just a small core team, and you're like, oh, there's no way this is going to work. And, but then God blesses it, and people are saved, and maybe the church even grows numerically, and, and you know, your initiatives work, and you, you hire staff, and, and people suddenly want to follow because there's a sense of momentum in the church. And maybe you build a building or the budget's in the, the black or, you know, all these kind of things we often look to. And, and we say, whoa, something's happening here. And, and whatever, these things happen. Like for Uzziah, he, he was having this outward prosperity and success in his ministry. And, and we begin to see things happening. And then <laughs> pride comes. And we start to think that it's us. Like, yeah, I, I've really, I've got this. I got this figured out, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that church over there, they, they don't seem to be thriving like our church. Probably because they're not following my methodology, right? <laughs> you know, I bet if they did what I did, then they would have the success I'm having. And, and so we begin to think that, that it's our method or our approach. We become prideful because we grow strong. Or sometimes we, we grow strong and, and then fall into pride uh, because of growing influence, like Uzziah. He, he starts off as this young 16-year-old guy, but eventually his fame spreads, his influence spreads. And again, influence is a good thing. It's not bad. It's a gift from God. It's a resource, in a sense, to be used for his glory and for the building up of his church. But influence does something or tempts us in our sinful hearts. You know, you start with no influence. You go to the board meetings or the elder meetings or whatever you have, and you, you know, you say something, and no one seems to listen. And then, and then that one board meeting, it happens. You, you, uh, you know, discussion is going on, and someone looks at you and they say, "Pastor, what do you think?" And then you're like, "What? Oh, wow! It only took three years. Well, uh, I think this." And they're like, "Oh, that's pretty good. Well, thanks, Pastor." And then. You know, then they start asking more. And then pretty soon, you're, you actually become, your influence grows and you become part of the decision-making circle. And, and then as, as it goes further and further, people then begin to, to look with you with more trust and more respect until sometimes it can grow to a place where, where, you know, nothing big can really happen unless you're on board. And you become a key opinion-maker and decision-maker. And people want to know what you think. And other pastors start approaching you. Hey, can we grab breakfast? I just want to pick your brain about a few things. Yeah, sure. You know, and that starts happening, and people are, you know, engaging with you, and, and you know, that's, that's a, a cool thing, and it's a blessing from God, but it's a dangerous thing because of our own sinful hearts. And we begin to think, you know, maybe, maybe I am kind of a big deal. Uh, maybe my opinion really is kind of important. And we start to think that, that everyone wants to hear what we have to say. And, and when that ripens in a sinful direction, then, then it's like no one can disagree with us and no ideas can go through unless there are ideas and we can't really follow anyone else. And nothing can happen unless we give our approval to it. 
or just one more. Sometimes I think we can grow strong in theology. We can grow strong in our ministry and our influence, or sometimes we grow strong in theology. And I think probably all of us here have had a theological journey. We, we could probably map out different sort of key moments in our, our theological development. For me, there were sort of three big watershed moments. One was when I finally under, started to get biblical theology, and I started to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament all point to Christ and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the New Testament, or the Old Testament, and all of the New Testament flows out of the cross and the empty tomb. And I began to see how it all fit together. It was, that was like a bomb that went off in my brain. And my Bible just, it's like I read the Bible all afresh after that. Another big uh, watershed moment for me was when I came to see the sovereignty of God in all things. And as, as uh, Edward said, it became a comforting doctrine to me. And it, that was, like, I felt like when I got that, I felt like I became born again again. Uh, really. And then, and then another big bomb for me that went off was when, uh, and, and here's where Nine Marks was so helpful in my life, was helping me get biblical ecclesiology to see that the Bible talks so much, not just about my private personal relationship with Jesus, but about the body and the community of believers that God has created to reflect his glory. And when that started clicking, that was, again, just transformative for me. And, and so you, you have, and so whatever your journey is, uh, or, or maybe some of you would think that some of those uh, advances for me are actually setbacks. But regardless, what, whatever your theological journey is, we, we do grow in our theological knowledge and the danger of pride comes in. A th- kind of theological pride. We begin to look down on others who don't have the same theological convictions. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> Pragmatist. <laughs> Pragmatist, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he just weak, in a week, he's weak in his theology. You know, I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument, everything you believe right now theologically is accurate. Like, were you born that way? <laughs> we, I didn't come out of the womb theologically formed. You know, whatever I believe that's true is because God has graciously been revealing himself through his word to me over the years. And, and, I, and, and because of that, I even have to hold the things that I hold deeply and dearly just a little bit loosely because I realize that I, I need to keep open to the word of God. And I think, guys, this is a really particular danger to us who would call ourselves reformed. I think we have a real danger to theological snobbery and elitism that, that looks down on other real brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't reformed and, and sort of holds them in suspicion. And we're in danger of becoming like those disciples who said, Jesus, those guys are casting out demons in your name. Tell them to stop. He said, hey, if you're not for me, you, you know, if you're not against me, you're for me. The, the, we're not going to stop them. And by the way, weren't these the same disciples who just a few verses earlier couldn't cast out the demon at the Mount of Transfiguration? <laughs> so we need to be cautious, even in our, our theological strength. And I love I love my sound doctrine, but it's pride that creeps into our souls. And when pride comes in, then it happens, and we cross the line. When pride comes in, we go beyond the boundaries. The proud person, for the proud person, the rules no longer apply, and they can do things because they think they're entitled to do them. That's what happened to Uzziah. If you look at his fall, he went into the house of God Similar to the rebellion of Korah in the wilderness, he brought strange fire into the temple. 
He, he was not abiding by the boundaries that God had put in place between the king and the priest. Kings do this, priests do that. And, and all of our rebellion against God is typically a breach of boundaries that God has put in creation or in the church. And so, so here, is, here is this Uzziah breaching the boundary and bringing the strange fire into the temple. The rules don't apply to him any longer. And these priests, you know, God bless Azariah. That's a man of courage. It's hard to stand up to a big successful leader and call them out. You know, some of us have done that. And, and that's, it feels really bad when you do it. But it really is an act of faithfulness when leaders have to be challenged by the people. And ultimately, that, that responsibility resides in the congregation to pick its leaders and to hold them accountable before God. That's why all of our, if you're here in a church member, that's why it's so important for you to know sound doctrine and you to know the gospel and not just trust that your pastors are the experts, but you need to know it so that if this happens, and Lord willing, it never will in your church, but if it happens, you'll know it and you'll be one of the mighty men of valor like these priests who go in and call it out and say, listen, this is not right. It's very clear. So we become proud and, and we cross a line and pastors cross lines. They, they begin to use the church as, as a, a way to make money off of people and to become rich. Or, or they begin to use the church as, as their kind of, uh, I, I don't know, their little fiefdom that they control and uh, w- where they get their affirmation or, or they get their uh, sense of credibility or whatever it is. Or, or pastors uh, expect everyone else to submit to God's word, but they don't submit to God's word. Or they don't pursue holiness in their own lives. Or, or pastors who are, are uh, addicted to pornography or having affairs. Or pastors who are abusive or domineering. So we're going to hear about later the importance of, of not being domineering in ministry. And so we cross all these lines. We look at other churches and condemn them. Churches that really are true churches. Because we, we become arrogant and the thing about it is, guys and, and gals, when we cross this line, there is a holy God on the other side of the line. And he's in a holy temple called the local church. You know, the church is not only the kingdom of God, the church is the eschatological temple that God is building for his glory in this world, made of living stones. It's, it's not a brick and mortar building in Jerusalem. It's you. And it's a holy temple. The temple that Christ has bought with his own blood and sanctified to himself. And so as pastors and elders, when we are dealing with God's church, there should be a sense of reverence and and holiness to to this task. Even when it's frustrating, even when people are are acting in immature ways, we're still dealing with the blood-bought people of God. And it's God's holy temple. And so when, when pastors behave in a way that, that, that treats that temple like it's their own little fiefdom where they can exert control and power and abuse people, or when pastors and elders treat the church like a money-making machine, or when pastors treat the church kind of like a supporting cast for their personal autobiography and narrative, or when pastors treat the church like a game preserve for hunting women, You need to know there's a holy God in that church. And God knows how to deal with kings who cross the line. He struck 
Uzziah with leprosy on his forehead, which I think is an ironic judgment, just as the priest was supposed to have the thing on his head that said, holy to the Lord, I think he got it on his forehead to show you're the opposite. And, and there's an inclusio there. He went into the temple. He was excluded from the temple. God knows how to deal with arrogant kings. And God does know how to deal with proud pastors. And God knows how to deal with abusive elders and arrogant elders. And God knows how to deal with smug seminarians. And God knows how to deal with church members who are are disruptive and, and seek their own agendas in the church. God knows how to deal with his church and how to protect it. So my brothers, pastors, elders, I would just ask us to examine our hearts. Are we proud pastors? Where is pride lurking in our souls? Where have we let strength and legitimate blessings from God become an opportunity for sin? because we've, we've held it in the wrong way. We need to repent. We need to repent of this. Brothers and sisters, fear the Lord. And take hope. Because our eyes behold another king. Not the king who arrogantly strode into the temple, but the king who humbly came forth from the Holy of Holies, came out of the temple and went out into the city where, where the people were, where the, the broken and the sinful and the diseased and the, the crippled were. And he went into that city and he found the lepers and he touched them. And they didn't make him unclean. He made them clean. Jesus can make lepers clean. And he didn't stop there. After he had done that, he went outside of the city itself, outside the walls, outside the camp where he was crucified, where he took the leprosy and the disease of our sin upon himself and all of the curse and the exclusion, where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was excluded outside of the city. And when he was the curtain of the temple was torn in two so that diseased sinners, proud pastors, could be restored to the presence of God. And so brothers, sisters, do, do you want to go into God's holy temple? Then go outside of the city. Go to the cross. Go to Jesus who can make the lepers clean and can restore the fallen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, we know none of us deserve to be in your presence, Lord. We all have been arrogant and prideful. That is the very essence of sin in many ways. And Lord, we, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and we again just acknowledge again, our total dependence upon Christ and his righteousness alone for our salvation and nothing of ourselves. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would touch us, that you would continue to purify us, that you would continue to highlight areas of our lives where we need to be repenting and submitting to you. 
And God, we pray, work in our lives, uh, work in our churches. May our churches more and more reflect the holiness and the purity of God, as well as the unity and the love of God. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.